bad for not having done announcements in a year, buddy. Well done. Yeah, my, my wife just informed me that my 10-year-old was very upset that there were no donuts this morning. Apparently, that is the most important thing, seeing dad forget that, right? So if you would like to volunteer, there's a sign-up sheet for donuts specifically on the back table. You can sign up there. Otherwise, uh, there are contact information in your bulletin for getting involved. And if you're at home and you're like, hey, I'd love to volunteer in some capacity, uh, first, just come. Just be here with us on a Sunday morning, and then we'll figure out where to plug you in because there's lots of opportunity for you to invest yourself rather than simply sitting in a seat and watching others. Uh, okay, so we last week uh, began to talk about the impact of the cross. We talked about the fact that when Jesus gave his life on the cross, he wasn't just dying to restore us back into relationship with the, in, with the Father, although that is the primary thing he was doing is restoring our connection to the Father, that we who were made in his image to do life with him could be restored back. We prodigals could come home, and that's good news, but it's not the whole good news. It's not the whole gospel, because he didn't just die to restore us back into relationship with the Father. He also gave his life to restore back to us the purpose for which we were created, namely, to be his representatives as image bearers, to join with God in the care, the cultivation, and the restoration of this world that he created. And I used a term last week that probably felt uncomfortable for some of you because it's a term that is found in the Bible, but it's not a term we use in the church very often. I said, you, if you are a follower of God, are a priest. And we typically think of priests as a Catholic thing, and that's not something that we necessarily talk a lot about within the walls of this church, but that's the language that is found throughout the Old Testament, and that's the language that even Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, but this is what, first, this is what Peter says in his letter to people. He says in 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Let me repeat that. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy, and the word holy simply means set apart, set apart for something special, kind of like you set apart fine china, and you don't, you don't use a, a, a fine china bowl to go and change your oil and catch the oil in, right? Because this is set apart for when you have a special occasion and you want to celebrate something. So you are a holy or set apart nation, God's special possession that you might declare his praises to him who has called him out of darkness into the wonderful light. That's what you've been called to do. That is what we have been called to do. And when Peter wrote those words, when he called his the people that he was writing to, a holy, royal priesthood. He was not writing to a bunch of Jews. He was writing predominantly to a bunch of Gentiles. He was not writing to seminary students. In fact, the vast majority of people he was writing to were baby Christians. They had just said yes to Jesus. They were just beginning to stumble in their walk of following him. And he looks at them and he declares them to be priests of God. And I can imagine that when they read those words, it felt too big. Now, maybe that's what the Sanhedrin is. They're the priests. That's not us. 
maybe Pharisees who had grown up and had memorized all of the Old Testament, what they would have called the Hebrew Scriptures, maybe one of them, their priests, not us. We don't deserve it. We don't know all the answers. We don't know the first thing about priesting, and I would imagine some of you this morning feel the same way. Like, I haven't been to seminary. I don't know the first thing about priesting. And that's what we are going to do today, is we are going to explore your and my God-given job description. Because we were called not just to be restored back into relationship with our Father in heaven, but we are called to be priests of the living God. This is what we were born or born again to do. But of course, this begs the question, well, what does it mean to be a priest? What does that look like? And I want to explore that with you. And in order to do that, we're going to go back to the Old Testament where the, the kind of position of a priest is described. Much of the Old Testament lays out how God wanted to interact with his people. And in particular, the first five books of the Bible kind of set the stage for everything else that is to come. And so we're going to go back to how the royal priesthood was described and use that as the foundation for our job description. So turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 10. All right, so it's the fifth book of the Bible. It goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we're going to look at verse 8 in particular. You guys there? You ready? I'm, I'm hearing a lot less page flipping. All right, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 8. At this time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister, and to pronounce blessings in his name as they still do to this day. So, there were 12 tribes of Israel. And out of those 12 tribes, God specifically identified one. I'm not going to go into why, but let's just say that they were faithful to God when the rest of the tribes of Israel were not. And so God said, out of this kingdom of priests, I'm going to specifically call you to operate as priests to the rest of the nation of Israel as the rest of the nation of Israel begins to act as priests to the rest of the world. And this is what he called the Levites to do, the priestly tribe in Israel. He said, you are going to be set apart to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister, and to pronounce blessing in his name. In other words, there are three things that are part of this job description of being a priest. The first is to carry the throne of God, or another way we could articulate this is to carry the presence of God. The second is to minister to God. And the third is to become conduits of his blessing to the rest of the world. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to break each of those down and we're going to look at how that played out for them and what it looks like for us to operate as priests who do these three things. First one we're going to look at is this idea that priests carry the throne of God everywhere that they go. Now, in the Old Testament, for the Levites, the throne of God was an actual tangible symbol because our God is a God of props. He recognizes that we sometimes have a difficult time getting heady concepts, and so in order to bring it 
down to our level, he allows us to have something that we can point to. Kind of like we have this cross here that reminds us of how deeply God loves us. The Ark of the Covenant symbolized the covenant that God had made with his people. I wear a wedding ring. This is a prop. This is something that reminds me and everybody else who sees it that I'm not my own. I, I was bought at a price. I bought, my heart belongs to another. If I were to take it off, it doesn't mean that I'm no longer married. But this is just that tangible reminder. And the Ark of the Covenant was the same thing. It was a tangible reminder of the covenantal relationship that God had established with his people. Inside that Ark, there were things that were kind of mementos of that. There was the Ten Commandments. There was a jar of manna that God had fed the people with. There was Mo or Aaron's staff that had budded at one point, like a, literally a staff he carried around that at one point began to grow um, some, some foliage on. And all of those things were placed into the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark became the physical representation of God's throne on earth. And the Levites, the priestly tribe within Israel, their responsibility was to carry that ark everywhere that the Israelites went. But you don't just carry the ark and let it be rained on, and so they also carried something called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. It was the early version of what would become the temple. Because as they were nomadic, as they were beginning to wander through the wilderness on their way to the promised land, Whenever they would go, they would break down the tent of meeting. They would, they would carry the ark and they would carry it to the next place. Then they would put the tent of meeting up. And by the way, they called it the tent of meeting because that was the place where people would go to meet with God. That was the place where the leaders of Israel would have a conversation with and, and, and listen to what God was saying to the people. Where Moses and Aaron would go in there and they would commune with God and they would come out and they would give direction to the rest of the people. And so this tent of meeting was the place where the people of God could come into contact with the living God and the ark was, was contained within that place, God's throne on earth. But we don't have the ark of the covenant anymore. It's been lost. I mean, the only place we ever see it is in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Right? And that was just a Hollywood kind of sensationalizing of it. So where is the throne of God today? It's right here, isn't it? This is the throne of God. This is the place where God sits enthroned upon the earth. Every single man, woman, and child who says yes to Jesus and accepts the gift of grace, God entrusts his Holy Spirit to them. And this becomes the throne of God. It's not because, you know, when you accept Jesus into your heart, you don't get like a little half-inch version of Jesus to live in one of the atriums of your heart. That's not how it works. When you say yes to Jesus, when you invite him into your life, the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that was present in the formation of the world, the same Spirit that empowered Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that Holy Spirit enters into your life and begins to terraform your heart, begins to change your heart of stone that is calloused with pride and the belief that you can do it all by yourself. The Holy Spirit begins to remove those calluses and gives you a heart of flesh that is able to submit to the leadership, the guidance of your Father God, so that you can better represent His heart into this world. 
So our hearts become the throne of God. And that means the rest of our body becomes the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, or the temple. And in fact, that's exactly what Peter articulates. In, he, he says this in, I'm sorry, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You're not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Your body is a temple of the living God. Your heart is the throne of God on earth. And you know what this means? This means that everywhere you go, you carry the presence of the living God into this world. What it means is that people don't have to step foot into this building on a Sunday morning to come into God's presence. Now, they can meet God here, and I hope that they do. And in fact, one of our ardent desires is that you and anybody else who walks into this place would come face to face with God. And sometimes I have to remind myself to get out of the way so that God can move. Sometimes I need to hold the things that I have prepared loosely in case the Holy Spirit wants to go a different direction. But it also means that wherever you go, you carry the presence of God with you. And that means that the people that live within proximity to us, that live within our sphere of influence, they can encounter God anytime they rub shoulders with you. They might be encounter Him here, but they can also encounter Him at the restaurant that you're going to go to after church today. Or at the line at Costco, in the checkout line. When they are rubbing shoulders with you, or they are rubbing shoulders, they are coming into contact with a living embodiment of the tent of meeting. When you go to the gym, the creator of the universe goes with you. Anywhere you happen to be, God is with you. And thus, our very presence becomes holy ground. And people can come into contact with God simply by coming into contact with you. Not because you're God. You are not God. You are nobody's savior. You couldn't possibly save anybody if you wanted to. But you carry the presence of the Savior with you. And your job is simply to become a, a physical touch point between the creator of the universe and his wayward image bearers. Now, I should mention that the Levites who carried the ark and carried the tent of meeting did not carry it any which way they wanted. They followed the lead of the Holy Spirit of God, as the, of the presence of God. And in that day, as they were wa wandering through the wilderness, the presence of God took the form of a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Whenever the pillar of cloud would lift and move, they would break camp, they would take down the tent of meeting, they would pick up the ark, and they would follow that cloud until it settled on a place. And when it stopped, they were the first ones to set up the tent of meeting. It was the very first thing that got set up in their camp. And the Ark of the Covenant went inside, and then all of the other tribes would establish their camp around it and around the center place, which is the presence of God. And in the same way, we do not arbitrarily go every which way. 
as priests, it is our responsibility to pay attention to where God is leading. And he doesn't necessarily do it with cloud or fire anymore. He does it through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our hearts that whispers in our ears, taps us on the shoulder, points us towards people. It says, goes there. And sometimes the Holy Spirit leads us to places that we wouldn't necessarily choose. I can't help but thinking of Jeff, who twice a week at least sits for three or more hours with a needle in his arm getting dialysis, and he's in a room full of people who are daily reminded of their own mortality. And as his blood is being purged because his kidneys are unable to keep up, God has planted him there, and he can't move. And I can guarantee you that Jeff would not choose to be there. He would much rather be on the sand with a fishing pole in his hand. But this is where the Spirit of God has led him. And as he has begun submitting to that, the posture of his heart has changed. And he's beginning to see opportunities left and right to simply be in the presence of hurting, scared image bearers of God who desperately need the hope that he has in his heart. And what they don't realize is as they're sitting there with him, they're also sitting in the presence of the king of creation who loves them desperately. I think of Ralph, who every single day of the school year, he's standing out on a street corner right by Mariner's Elementary as a crossing guard, making sure that the kids get to and from school safely. And those kids have no idea that as they walk along that crosswalk, they're rubbing shoulders with a priest of God. The presence of their creator is there with them because Ralph is there. I think of Wendy, who continues to minister over at College Hospital to a small handful of anxious, depressed, oftentimes suicidal kids. And when she walks in the room, what they don't realize is it's not just a counselor who's walking into the room with them. Their creator, who made them in his image and loves them more than they love themselves, has walked in the room with her. That is what we are. We're nobody's savior. We are people who carry the presence of God everywhere we go, which is why I remind you time after time after time, this building is not the church. This is just the box that the church resides in. You are the church. You are the ministers. You are the pastors. You are the priests. Wherever you go, the presence of God goes with you. So that's the first thing, the first part of our job description, but it's not all that a, a priest would do. You see, a priest would also enter into the presence of God and minister before God. That was the second piece of a minister's responsibility is to minister to God. Well, what does that look like? Well, for the priests in Israel, it meant making intercession on behalf of the people. It meant carrying the needs. Sometimes it looked like making confession for the people because, let's be honest, the people of God were a wayward people. They oftentimes did the opposite of what their Lord called them to do. And so a priest would intercede on behalf of the people by confessing their sins and asking God for forgiveness. He would do that every year on the Day of Atonement. And he would do it throughout the year. And also throughout the year, the, the priest would 
carry the needs of the people before God and intercede through prayer on their behalf. And this is what it looks like for us, because I will remind you that God has sovereignly planted each of you in a unique sphere of influence. And your sphere of influence is different from my sphere of influence. You live on a different street than I do. You interact with different neighbors than I do. If you go to work, you go to work with people that will probably never step foot into this building. I don't have the opportunity to be a pastor to them. I don't have the opportunity to share the good news with them. But God has placed you in a unique position to be a part of their life, to carry the presence of God into their world. And my guess is there's a lot of hurting people that are around you. I want you to think for just a moment. Think about where God has planted you. Think about the place you live. Think about the neighbors that live around you. Think about the people that you regularly rub shoulders with. For those of you who have filled out this, this card, our sphere of influence card, think about the people whose names are on that card for a moment. My guess is there's a lot of hurting, scared people because we live in a world right now that is hurting. We live in a sin-warped world. And specifically, there are people in our world right now and in our neighborhoods, in our spheres of influence who are anxious, who are isolated, who are lonely. A few weeks back, I talked about relational poverty and the fact that we live in an epidemic of isolation and loneliness. And just to give you an idea of how epidemic it is, our views on YouTube for that message is double and even triple any of the other messages that we've done in the last year. Why? Because it's an epidemic that people feel. You probably feel it. People are depressed. People are scared. Everything in their world that they have hung their identity on, that they have hung their confidence in, everything is being shaken. And all although you may not be aware of the depths of their, their despair because they put on a good face, they smile, they pretend to have it all together. When they post on social media, it's all the good stuff. And so they feel or they look like they got it all together. The reality is there are hurting people all around us who are desperately trying to keep their head above water. And as a priest of God, it is your opportunity to stand in the gap and to bring the needs of the people before our God. So, how do we do this? How do we intercede on behalf of the people and begin to care for them when we recognize, when we're the first to say, I can't be anybody's savior. I can't, I can't save myself, let alone my suicidal neighbor. I can't save myself, let alone that depressed kid whose parents are going through divorce and he's totally isolated. How do we do it? I'll tell you where we begin. It begins with prayer. And let me just say at the outset, saying that we start with prayer is not a cop-out. As if prayer is just some secondary thing that we do. Prayer is the single most powerful weapon we have in our arsenal to take the fight to the enemy. 
Because I will remind you something that we saw very clearly as we were going through the book of Revelation. We live in a world at war. We reside in enemy-occupied territory. And we are seeking to take back what the enemy believes to be his. Taking back ground. Taking back image bearers of God who have become captive by the lies of the enemy because he is a liar and the father of lies. He loves to accuse us. He loves to, to steal our hope kill our faith, and ultimately cause us to be sidelined. We have an enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for whom he may devour. And who do lions go after? They go after the isolated. They go after the weakened. They go after the discouraged. They go after the animals who have lost their will to fight. Think about your sphere of influence for a moment and the people that God has placed around you. Think about how many lonely, isolated, anxious, depressed, borderline suicidal people live around you. The enemy goes after them hardcore. And if, if the rise in divorce and if the rise in depression and anxiety and, and, and if the rise in suicide is any indication, the enemy is having a field day. And so you have a God-given right, you have a God-given responsibility to stand in the gap as a priest of God and to intercede, to pray on behalf of those who are being attacked by our enemy. The last chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, Paul lays out armor that we can use to stand against the enemy's attack because the reality is the enemy doesn't just go after them he goes after us he goes after our hearts and our minds and so he lays out the armor of god that we can use to take our stand against the enemy's attacks knowing that he's going to attack us too so he talks about the breastplate of righteousness that we can use to guard our hearts so when the enemy begins to whisper accusations we can say no no no, no. i'm a child of god i haven't done everything perfectly but I'm perfectly loved, and I'm perfectly secure in that love. And the helmet of salvation that, to, that, that bears probably the emblem of the cross, if you will, not only to declare our identity as children of God, but also to protect our minds from the lies of the enemy. And our shield of faith that we use not only to extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy's attacks for ourselves, but of those around us. And even the sword of the Spirit, which he calls the Word of God, with which we can parry the attacks and the twisted thinking of our enemy. As he begins to make accusations and begins to suggest that you need to do this in order to be accepted. And this is the, the source of your identity, is what you've done or what you will do, or what you've accumulated, or what your sexual identity is, or who you voted for, or whatever else it is that you want to fill in the blank. We use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to parry those things, to defend ourselves. And I'll remind you that every single piece of the armor of God is defensive in nature. It is in order to help us stand our ground and not give up ground against the enemy who pushes and pushes and pushes. So if we want to take ground back from the enemy, ground that he thinks is his, 
ground that he has declared to be his. Hearts that were fashioned in the image of God, but had become shackled by the lies of the enemy. They had, his lies have found purchase in their hearts, and they have accepted it as truth, and so their hearts have become shackled by the belief that their identity is what they've done or what's been done to them, or they're a victim, or they are the sum total of their sexual conquests, or the sum total of their bank account, or they are only valuable if they have a significant other. Lies, all of them. Utter lies that far too many of God's image bearers have bought into hook, line, and sinker, and so they walk around shackled. And then the enemy whispers, your identity, the things that you find your identity in are under attack, which only breeds fear in our hearts. And when we feel fear, we tend to respond either with anger or apathy, right? Or, or anger, fight or flight. Either we get mad that our, the, the source of our identity is under attack, or we get despondent because we feel completely powerless in it. I'm describing to you the human condition that exists for far too many of our neighbors and may even exist for some of you. If we want to take back prisoners who have been captivated by the lies of the enemy, how do we do it? We pray. Because prayer is the single most offensive weapon that we have. If the armor of God is intended to help us stand our ground, prayer is the weapon that we use to take back ground and take back hearts. I want you to think for a moment of a soldier during World War II, covered with a helmet, covered in body armor, hunkered down in a foxhole with the bullets of the enemy whizzing over his head. And in his hand, that soldier holds a field phone, and that field phone gives him the ability to call in an airstrike on a fortified bunker that the enemy has established. Prayer is the field phone with which we can call in the big guns, whether it be the ship guns, that obliterate the enemy without us having to put ourselves in the line of fire. Or to call in the planes to drop the bunker busters that uproot the strongholds that the enemy has taken, and to begin to liberate captive hearts. That's what prayer is. It is the most offensive weapon. It is not a cop-out. It is the way that we take our fight to the enemy. Because one call does more than an entire platoon could possibly do on their own. One prayer And set captives free. And if you don't believe me, I want you to think for just a moment about your life prior to you coming to faith. And I want you to ask yourself, was there somebody who was praying in the background for me? Some parent. Some caring person that was interceding on my behalf. And even for some of you who have been walking with God for a long time, we, remember, we get attacked by the enemy. And when you feel under it, you got to know that there are people who are praying, interceding on your behalf regularly. We don't do it because we don't want to get our hands dirty. We do it because we recognize it is the single most powerful weapon 
to take back what the enemy considers to be his. So as priests, we not only carry the presence of God everywhere we go, but we have the right and we have the responsibility to intercede, to pray on behalf of hurting people all around us. But there's a third job that we as image bearers, that we as sons and daughters of the living God, we as people who have acknowledged that Jesus is more than just our Savior, He's our Lord. There's a third job that we have. We get to represent the people to our God, but we also get to represent our God to people. We get to begin to carry the blessing from our Heavenly Father to the world that's darkened by sin. And often when we talk about the fact that we are blessed to be a blessing, our first thought is monetary. Our stuff. What do I have in my hands that I can then bless others, right? And that's part of it. But that's not the biggest way that we are blessed in order to be a blessing. Because as I remind you, we have an enemy who is a liar. He is the father of lies. He prowls around looking for whom he can whisper lies about what makes them valuable into their ears so that they begin to, or, or perhaps whisper lies of if anybody knew what you struggle with, they'd be disgusted. They would want nothing to do with you. You're a failure. You're an embarrassment. You should be ashamed. Your sexual preference is your identity. It is the sum total of what makes you valuable in this world. And they don't accept you. They hate you. Lies. Your safety is in this political party. You need them to win in order for us to be safe. You better climb the corporate ladder so that you can prove to yourself, so you can prove to your dad, so you can prove to the rest of the world that you're not as much of a failure as you think you are. Lies. We have an enemy who whispers lies into our ears. And they are accepting it and believing it and they carry around the shackles of those beliefs. And then when those beliefs about what makes them valuable feel under attack, it makes them scared. And when scared people get mad. And so, yes, there's a ton of anger out there right now. Because there's a whole lot of people who have bought into the belief that their identity is something other than image bearers and sons and daughters of God. They have based their identity, their value, their sense of acceptance on shifting sands. They've hung their identities on pegs that are in drywall. And as the world is shaking, and it is shaking, those pegs are beginning to tear out of the wall and they're falling to the ground and people are scared. I'm scared. I know you're probably scared. But we don't fear as those who have no hope. Because when everything is shaken, it exposes the one thing that cannot be shaken, our Father in heaven. And when we are surrounded by people who are scared, 
who have placed their identity in something other than their, 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 their relationship with God, when they have bought into lies and accepted them as truth, then as priests of God, it is our right and our responsibility to begin to carry the blessing of truth into their life. To begin to point them back to what is true of them. You are loved. I know you don't feel loved. I know you don't feel acceptable. I know you feel like you have to perform for approval. Can I just tell you that I, I, I bought into the same belief. I spent way too much of my life trying to perform for others, trying to perform for my dad, trying to perform for my mom, trying to perform for my friends. I became a social chameleon. I would wear masks based upon who I was interacting with. With a, with a boss, I was stoic and a hard worker because I thought that that's what they wanted to see. When I was around my friends, I was silly and irreverent and I would totally say things that were inappropriate because I thought that that's what they wanted to see. I became a caricature of myself and I gave other people the right to define me, to tell me whether or not I was enough. People I wouldn't entrust the care of my goldfish with if I was going out of town. I was giving them the right to define me and tell me whether or not I was okay. The gospel is good news to me because it's a reminder of the fact that my identity is not dependent upon what I have done, but upon what he has done. That in a world where love is contingent upon your efforts and your actions, we are reminded that he loved us before we ever bent our knee. While we were still living in open rebellion to him, he loved us to the point of dying for us. We have the right and the responsibility as priests of God, not just to represent the hurting people to our perfect God, but to represent the heart of our Father God to hurting people and to remind them that the things that they have begun to believe about themselves that have caused them to be shackled and terrified, that's not the sum total of who you are. You are loved, whether or not you feel like it, whether or not you're willing to accept it, because after all, we're only willing to accept the love we think we deserve. But we get to be conduits of that truth, and that is the best blessing we have to offer. But I will tell you, before we can give anything to anyone else, before we can be a conduit of the truth, it needs to be true of us. We need to accept it ourselves. Because if we go through life with the insecure belief that we have to earn our love, then we are going to end up transferring that onto other people. We could have the most pure water of truth poured into our hearts, but if our hearts are still clogged full of the, the mess and muck of our own insecurity, it's like pouring pure water into a mug that had been used to, to hold bacon grease. It is going to end up causing that water to taste funky. Like the day that I took a water bottle, I filled up a water bottle like 5.30 in the morning, I went and played basketball, and it was, I took first drink, and I, and I realized immediately that it was a water bottle my wife had stored chicken stock in. 
Because that pure, filtered water that I'd poured into that water bottle tasted like chicken stock. When we have insecure... Oh, and by, I, I should mention, I didn't drink a whole lot of that water that day, right? It was impalatable. It was not refreshing. When we, don't, uh, when we can't rest in our own identity, then everything that comes out of the vessel ends up tasting like the vessel, ends up tasting like our insecurity, and we end up putting that onto others. We start treating our spouses like we treat ourselves. We start treating our children with a heavy hand. We basically love others the way we love ourselves, and if we don't love ourselves very much, and we don't think very highly, then we're going to end up passing that on to others. So before we can pass anything on to anyone, we need to rest in the truth of what is true of us. You are loved, not because of something you've done, but because of what he has done. Your identity is not defined by your own accomplishments or your own mistakes. Your value comes from the fact that you were created in the image of the creator and sustainer of this world, and he loves you more than you could possibly fathom. You did nothing to earn it. You can't do anything to lose it. The only thing you can do to thwart that love is to resist it and to say, I'm not worthy of it, and to hold it at arm's length. You could be utterly loved, but if you don't feel like you're worthy, then you will never come home, and you will stay a prodigal your whole life with a father who loves you and is pining for you and is looking for you and is inviting you home and you're saying, nope, nope, he's a jerk. Nope, he's overbearing. Nope, I can do this better myself. And we will stay enslaved. And we will be unable to set any other captives free with the truth that we have been unwilling to accept ourselves. So this morning, let me remind you that if you are a child of God, if you have said yes to the gift of grace that Jesus purchased for you on the cross, you are God's son, you are his daughter, and he loves you, and he accepts you, and he is present with you. And the purpose for which you were created has been restored back to you. You become an ambassador of hope. In fact, I don't want to miss this. I want to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul basically articulates everything I've just said to you. He sums it up in one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture. He says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then entrusted to us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, thank God. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are, therefore, Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal to the world through us. This is your God-given job description as a restored, redeemed, fully loved child of God who has had your purpose restored back to you, you may work as a police officer. You may work in the school system. You may be a retired grandmother or grandfather. 
And all of those things are important. But over and above all of that, you are a priest, an ambassador, a representative of the living God. And the way that you live out your identity declares to the world, the God of the universe is not far off. He's right here. He's with us. He loves you more than you could possibly fathom. You carry the presence of God everywhere you go. You have the right and the responsibility to represent the heart of hurting people to our God, and you have the right and the responsibility to carry the blessings of God to the world that he created and the image bearers who stumble around in the darkness. Not so that you become their savior, but so that you act as a light in the darkness, pointing them back to the only one that can save them and give them purpose and meaning in life. That is our God-given job description. And I can think of two, there's probably lots of ways we could respond this morning, but there's two in particular that I want to invite us into. The first is to acknowledge that there's probably some of you in this morning, in here, that um, you have been holding God at arm's length because you don't feel worthy. Well, you're in good company because none of us are. And you may have been trying to clean yourself up so that you can be accepted to him. He says, forget that. Just come home and let me clean you up. Stop thinking that your standing with God is determined by your effort and your actions and start resting in what he has already declared of you to be true. You are loved. You were made in my image. Just come home. Be with me. Let me clean you up. Let me remind you how deeply loved you really are. And then let me allow you to join me in becoming a conduit of my love into the sphere of influence that I have already divinely planted you in. If you've been holding God at arm's length this morning, you're most important response is simply to, to go from this to this. We call it a gift of grace because there's nothing you did to earn it. If there was something you had to do to earn it, then it would be payment for services rendered, not a gift. This is love. Not that we loved God but that he loved us so much so that he sent Christ to die in our place so that we could be restored back into relationship with him. And it begins. This journey of walking with God, of communing with him, of joining him in the redemptive restoration of his good creation begins simply with a prayer of acceptance. I give up. I give up. I've run hard. I screwed up a lot. I believed a lot of lies about myself. Jesus, I need you. I'm tired of running. I'm tired of striving. I'm tired of trying to do it on my own. I invite you to come in. Holy Spirit, I invite you to enter my heart and begin to clean house. Jesus, I accept you as my Savior, 
and I choose to follow you as my Lord. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Now, every time I've ever prayed that prayer, it has been different. There's nothing magical about the words. The heart is simply an acceptance of a gift that is already bought and paid for, and it's just waiting for you to accept it because we only accept the love we think we deserve, which is why I keep reminding you, you can't earn this, but it's yours anyway. Our second response is to those of you who already called Jesus your Lord and your Savior, to those of us who have already been walking a bit with him, the reminder is that as we leave this place, the presence of God goes with us because we are the church. This building is not the church. And we have a unique opportunity and a responsibility to intercede on behalf of those in our midst who are hurting. And they are hurting. This might be people in your own family that are holding God at arm's length. This might be people in your neighborhood that are overwhelmed and discouraged, possibly even suicidal. And you can't save them. But you can go to battle for them by praying, by, for inter by interceding for them. And that's what we're going to do this morning. I just want to invite us into a few minutes, as the worship team comes forward, I want to invite us into a few minutes of beginning to intercede on behalf of the people in our sphere of influence. If you filled this out, some of your work is done, you've identified the people that God has uniquely planted in you in your sphere of influence. And if you don't have one of these cards, I highly encourage you to grab one on the way out and begin following the instructions of it. But let's spend a few minutes praying for those in our midst who are hurting, who need to have an encounter with the living God and realize just how deeply loved they are. And if you don't know their names, if you don't know who to pray for, then invite the God of the universe and the Holy Spirit in your heart to open your eyes to the hurts around you. Because he knows them intimately, whether or not you know them. So let's spend a few minutes interceding on behalf of the people God has planted into our midst and bringing them before our God.
rejoice, all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light, and darkness tries to hide, and trembles at his voice, and trembles at his voice. How great is our that our God is great. And as we live out of that, out of that truth of how great his love is, how great his mercy is, how great his grace is in our lives, then as we go out of this place and begin to live out of that truth, not looking for our identity in our kids' success, not looking for our identity in what people say about us on social media, or how many likes we get. 
Not believing that our identity is based upon what we accomplish at work or whether or not we get that promotion. When we can rest in how great our God's love is for us, then we get to become conduits of that blessing, that freedom into our spheres of influence. And then all will see how great our God is. That's what it means to be an ambassador of hope. And that is what you are. You are loved. You are accepted. You are secure. And you are a priest who, as you leave this place, carries that truth and the one who makes that true with you. You're going to see a lot of hurting people as you go. You can't save them. Release yourself from that expectation. Love them. Lean in. Pray for them. When they bug the heck out of you, and they will, when they make you mad, pray for them. When they make you sad, pray for them. When you feel overwhelmed by their pain, pray for them. And then become a conduit of that loving kindness that God has lavished upon you. You who are unworthy, he has declared you to be worthy. You who are far away, he has declared you, he has invited you home. He's doing the same for them. You are the church. So Lighthouse community, go be the church. Have a wonderful, safe, relatively sane 4th of July. If you have prayer requests or you have anything else you want to let us know about, you can drop those in the, in the offering boxes on the way back. Have a wonderful week. We love you. We'll see you next week.